We're going to be looking at, uh, there's a few verses we're going to look at, but we're going to focus really on one verse today. Chapter 1, verse, we're going to look at verses 15 and 16 as we start. Um, We're looking at how this ancient letter that tells the story of God at work so long ago still speaks today. And so we're going to start by reading uh, verses 15 and 16. They're up here on the screen. They're in your bulletin with a place there to take notes. Um, Friends, listen, this is something that was written so long ago, and yet God inspired it to be written so that it would speak to you today. Romans 1, verses 15 and 16. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so just to catch up to speed, what we've seen so far in this letter um, is that God works in life. He's actively at work, and he works in several ways. We've seen already, next slide, that uh, he works through history, uh, in the technology, in the ways of the world, and even the political movements uh, of nations. He works through history. He also works through people. Uh, He worked through the changed lives of people to show and demonstrate that he is real, and that people can know that he is at work in people's lives. God didn't reject people, uh, but he also didn't wholeheartedly endorse everything that they did either. And so in this kind of way of affirmation and and transformation, God works through people. And then last week we saw that God works through Jesus. Um, Jesus is the ultimate example of God's response to the world. So if you want to know how does God feel about the world, how does God feel about you, how does God feel about life, look at Jesus. Okay, we saw this last week, but I just want to review that Jesus shows us that God hasn't rejected the world. Okay, Jesus shows us that God actually in, embraces the world. God became human. God entered into our world. That's how much he cares. Um, God affirmed the goodness in the world. Um, but Jesus had to come also because God didn't fully endorse all of humanity. Um, There are things about us that are made in his image that he does endorse. But then there's things about us that are contrary to uh, to who we're supposed to be. And God doesn't endorse those things. Jesus also opposed injustice and oppression. He opposed evil and selfishness. And what's fascinating is that the way that Jesus opposed these things is so different from the kind of opposition that we see in our world and that we also tend to act out in. The way that we oppose things. Um, We we get angry, we get bitter, we sort of sometimes take the ends justify the means kind of approach and we'll do anything it takes to achieve our goals. That's not how Jesus opposed the evil in the world. right? Ask yourself, how did Jesus do this? Well, Jesus opposed um, these things by living a different and better life first and foremost. He did the things that he was calling other people to do. He didn't do the things that he was opposing. He didn't fight the way that they fought. And so he lived this different and better life. And then he invited other people to follow him and to live that same different and better life. But then he took it a step further. And Jesus actually took all of the punishment that the injustice and oppression and evil and selfishness deserved. He took all of the punishment of that and he died a torturous death on a cross. 
Okay, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And, and he died because of the evil of Jewish jealousy and Greek-Roman oppression. But that's not the end of the story. Because then, after that, Jesus was raised from out of the dead. Jesus came out of the grave. And the resurrection shows us that life beyond death is an embodied reality. Okay? Life beyond death is not your disembodied spirit flitting off on a cloud somewhere in the heavens. No, no, no. no. The reality, Jesus' resurrection means that we're not going to divorce this world, but the world and us will be renewed. Okay? We're not going to be rid of our bodies, but we will be raised up and given new and perfected bodies in the new heavens and earth. Right? Who wants a perfected body? <laughs> How many of y'all deal with body image issues? Well, there's one coming for you that is perfect and it's glorious and you will be satisfied with it. Boy, that's good news. That is good news. And the resurrection proves that. Jesus affirmed people and the world and physicality in his resurrection. And his resurrection, this was the beginning of God's plan to fix and heal and renew everything in heaven and on earth. Jesus' resurrection was God's declaration of the future. The good news was that Jesus brought God's power into the world. Jesus endured the worst suffering that life could offer. Jesus endured the worst suffering that God could inflict, and he came out the other side. He overcame the suffering. He overcame the judgment. He came out standing victorious. And this was the news that Paul proclaimed. And it had earth shattering implications. No exaggeration. It had earth-shattering implications. Um, It had life-changing implications. It meant something incredible about God and who God was. It meant something incredible about people and what we could be. And it meant something very real and sobering about sin and about God's plan to fix and to heal the brokenness in our lives and in the world at large. This was the gospel that Paul preached. This was his news. And you have to understand that Paul's world was not that much unlike our own. Because at that time, Caesar had a different gospel that he proclaimed. Caesar said that he had come to make Rome great again. Thank you. Delayed there. Caesar claimed that if you said, I'm with him, then you'd be blessed. Caesar said that if you could, with him, feel the burn of a renewed empire, then you would experience the glorious blessings of Caesar's reign. That was the gospel that was preached in Rome. But Paul said, no, 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 no. The real good news is what God has done through Jesus in this story. And everyone, hear me, hear me, hear me. Everyone thought that Paul was crazy. They listened to his story about Jesus and the details of it, and they thought, this guy is an idiot. I mean, to us, we hear it, you sit in church, you've heard this a billion times, right? Some of you are new, and yet maybe some of you have already heard some things about Jesus, and you're like, yeah, this is what they think. Well, back then, it was like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Paul preached this message, and the Greek-speaking Romans thought he was crazy. 
Um, and the Jews thought that Paul was dumb. And when Paul preached this message, he'd be ridiculed, ostracized, even attacked. When Paul claimed that Jesus rose from the dead, people would revolt. They would arrest him. They would beat him and try to kill him. You can read about this in the book of Acts. This is what happened when Paul preached the message. And this happened because to the Jewish world, this story about Jesus was nothing more than weakness. The story of Jesus was completely weak. Uh, It was about weakness. The Jews checked out of the Jesus story when Paul admitted that Jesus was crucified. When the crucifixion came and the story that Paul told about Jesus, all the Jews said, wait, hold on. Okay, we're done. We're done here. This is proof that Jesus was too weak to actually be the Jewish Messiah. Okay, crucifixion meant failure. And when they heard that Jesus died, they dismissed Paul. They said, okay, we're done. You, know, you ever talk to somebody and they say something, you're like, oh, I'm done. I'm out. This person clearly doesn't know what they're talking about. That's what would happen in the Jewish heart and mind when Paul said that this Jesus person was crucified. Because no Messiah could be defeated like this. To believe that Jesus was the Messiah meant that he would be victorious. He would conquer. And the idea, and he was supposed to conquer Rome. And so you're telling me that actually Jesus was betrayed and the Romans crucified him? Well, the best way to find out if somebody is the Messiah or not is to ask, so what happened to him? And if they died, they failed. Everyone knew that the Messiah would come and be be victorious, but crucifixion meant weakness and failure. So when Paul told this story, the Jewish world said, this is ridiculous. This is unbelievable. We can't believe this. This flies in the face of everything that we think. And so it was weakness to the Jews, but to the Romans, this was foolish. The Romans might have stayed in, actually, through the crucifixion, uh, but they would check out at the resurrection. Okay, Because for the Romans, they were used to royalty dying and then people claiming that that royalty ascended spiritually into heaven and were united with the gods. But the idea that that God would, or that that person, that, 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 that Caesar would come back in a bodily existence was completely foolish. Nobody thought that. Nobody would have stomached that idea because everybody realized the whole point of religion back then for the Greeks, for the Romans, the whole point of religion was to escape the body. We're stuck here. We have these spirits, these souls that are stuck inside our physical bodies. And what we're trying to do is to get out. If we could just get us, if we could just escape, if we could be freed from this flesh, this, this mortal body, this mortal life, then finally we'd be free. And so the idea that a Roman carpenter was Lord instead of Caesar and rose bodily from the dead and lived in a body forever would make you an intellectual idiot to people who were Greek speakers and to the Romans. They'd laugh in your face. They would feel sorry for you. They would condescendingly, not literally pat you on the head and say, wow, that's really good for you. Um, They'd roll their eyes and smile knowingly at each other and just feel bad that you were one of those backwater folks who just didn't understand what life was really about. Can you relate? 
You ever been made to feel that way? Paul understands what it's like for us to live in a way that is sometimes backwards from the rest of the world around us. He understands what it's like for you with friends, with family members, with coworkers. When you have this sense that everybody in the room except you thinks that Christianity is foolish, it's sort of backwards, it's outdated, that folks that believe in Jesus sort of have this like desperate need to, I don't know, feel like somebody out there cares for them because they're just too weak. They're not strong enough to make it on their own. And we feel oftentimes belittled for what we believe. Uh, we feel intimidated. I mean, don't you feel that way sometimes? I mean, sometimes even in school, like think about it, even, um, like even at Point Loma, right? A whole Christian college, and yet sometimes, if you're actually serious about Jesus, you could be made to feel like, oh, oh you're one of those kinds of Christians. Um, and you feel belittled for actually wanting to follow Jesus, um, let alone at San Diego State or UCSD, right, where you're in environments that are explicitly hostile, where everybody knows that it's the foolish and the intellectually weak and the people have their head buried in the sand that follow Jesus. I mean, let alone when you're out with your friends having drinks and topics come up and you have the sense everybody else thinks the same thing and you don't know, should I bring it up or not? Should I speak up or not? These are difficult things, right? There's a level of shame that gets heaped on us. And honestly, sometimes we deserve it. Can we just admit that? Sometimes Christians do stupid things and the ridicule from the world around us, it's like, oh, all right, okay, I deserve that. Like, I am an idiot. <laughs> what I did was stupid. Um, but sometimes people just ridicule us and they just think that we're dumb because of what we believe. That's what it was like in Paul's day. And so into the face of that constant misunderstanding, okay, into the, 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 the current of that opposition, Paul spoke. And I want you to see what he had to say. Okay, I want you to see what he had to say. Um, the first point, we're going to walk through this one verse, verse 16, in just four steps. And, um, and the first thing he said was, next slide, he said, um, I don't let shame silence me. Okay, that's what he says here. Look at verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see that in your bulletin? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So Paul is saying, look, I refuse to be shamed by others. Okay, I'm resisting the temptation to be silenced by their ridicule. And this is Paul. Paul's saying, yeah, I know it's hard. It's really hard, but I'm not ashamed. Yeah, they think I'm stupid, but I'm not going to be silenced. I know I look like an out-of-touch idiot, but I, I'm not going to be silenced about what I believe about Jesus. I mean, it's tough when you're at work and you've got colleagues or coworkers who've had bad experiences with Christians 
It's tough when the only Christianity that the people that you know have seen is coming from the media and their depiction of Christians. It's really difficult. Um, I mean, with friends, it's hard to be out. I mean, I've, I've actually commiserated with a lot of my gay friends about how difficult it is and the pressures that keep both of us in the closet. We can relate. But this is why Paul says what he says in verse 16. He knows it's difficult. He knows it's hard to believe in Jesus and be out with your faith in a world that's so different. But he's come to a conclusion. He's come to this conclusion um, that he's not going to let the shame silence him. He's concluded that. And this is kind of striking because this is a pricey commitment to make. Because if you say yes to this commitment, you're basically saying yes to being ridiculed, to being ostracized, to being made fun of, to having people... And sometimes it's not so overt, right? Sometimes it doesn't feel like you're directly being put down. Sometimes you just sort of have this sense everybody just feels bad for you. Right? But that, that's a penalty. I mean, that's, that's a price that you pay. And the question is, why would Paul do this? I mean, if you look at verse 15, he says, so I'm eager to preach to you who are in Rome. I'm eager. It's like he's, he, he wants this. He's not ashamed, but he's dying to do this. How can he say this? Well, there's a reason for Paul. There's a reason underneath his commitment to not be silenced by the shame. And if you can embrace Paul's reason then I think you will find yourself that underneath the pressure, underneath the weight that the shame can put on you that causes you to be silent, underneath that, there is a strength that can grow in you. And so how can Paul say this? Well, it's, it's because of the second point. Paul said, I don't let the silence shame me. And Paul said, I've seen this news unleash God's power. Catch this. Paul is saying, I have seen that this news unleashes God's power. He says, because the gospel, this gospel changes everything. This gospel, the announcement, this announcement of Jesus, um, verse 16, he says, it is the power of God for salvation. Paul says it's the power of God for salvation. And so, remember, every time that Paul preached, every time he suffered, he was ridiculed, he was ostracized, he was attacked, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was imprisoned. And yet, when he shared this news, there were people in the crowds. Like, everybody was yelling off with his head. Everyone was yelling, you know, let's crucify him to follow his... I mean, everybody was against him. And yet, there were people who thought, wait, this is, this is true. This is God. Jesus is the expression. And, and if you asked him, like, well, what do you mean? Like, how can you say this? They'd be like... I'm not exactly sure why, but I have the sense that that Jesus actually is the expression of God on earth. There's something inside of me that knows that Jesus is the embodiment of the God of heaven come to earth. 
a lot of times it's because people have the sense that, you know what, actually this is exactly the kind of God that I need. I need the kind of God who, who is so powerful, who is in control, and yet who sees my failures and is willing to give me another chance. I need a God of love, and not just a God of love, but a God of sacrificial love, who is willing to take on, I mean, if I'm honest, like, I don't deserve the blessings of God. If I'm honest, I've done all kinds of things. I mean, there's people that are worse than me, but when it comes down to it, I know in my own heart, I've done bad things. I have hurt other people. I have ignored God for so long in my life. And what you're telling me now is that God is willing to, can I even say God's willing to overlook what I've done and forgive me? And yet, do it in a way where he demonstrates just how bad what I've done is because he took the punishment that I deserve. Wait, you're telling me that God has a bigger purpose for this world? That God wants us as human beings to live in, in, in like radical peace with him, with each other, with ourselves and with the world? Like God wants us to actually live together on a mission to bring this world so that it looks the way God designed it to look? Wait, there's a mission here. Wait, you're telling me that, that God has manifested himself in the world so that I can explore this world and learn more about him? That this world is full of things that can teach me more about what God is, what he likes, who he is, and what he's done for me? And everywhere that Paul preached, there were people who said, wait, I'm in. I'm in. I want to follow this Jesus. I feel in my heart that I need to get right with God. And Jesus is the pathway back. Paul says, the reason why the shame doesn't silence me is because when I speak into the shameful culture, the, the shaming culture, when I speak in and even embarrass myself at times, when I stand boldly for Jesus, I'm not being obnoxious, I'm not saying dumb things, but I'm just telling people about Jesus and how he works in people's lives. When I do that, Paul is saying it unleashes God's power. People's lives change and they change radically. That God rescues people. This is God's power for salvation. And, and so for some of you who've been in the church, this actually might be a bad thing that you see this word salvation because for some of you who've been in the church for a long time, you hear the word salvation, you think, oh yeah, this means getting saved, having your sins forgiven. And that's true, but that's maybe like a tenth of what the word salvation means. The Bible says that God begins our salvation by forgiving us and giving us assurance that we're part of his family. Those are radical, life-altering blessings. And yet that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of a relationship with your creator. It's just the beginning of a relationship with someone who knows everything and is all-powerful. And he knows you and all that you are and everything that you are. And he loves you. He accepts you. 
And he's going to put his power in you to change you, to grow you. He's going to give you a mission so that not just are you going to experience joy and peace and a measure of happiness no matter what your life circumstances are, but he actually wants to turn you into someone of influence. The gospel gives you a power that fills you up and then spills out of you into others. Like this is God's design. If you read way back at the beginning of the Bible, when God made the earth, when he made the heavens and the earth, everything that God made was life-giving. Everything that God made was was self-propagating. Everything that God made, um, like the plants, had seed in them so that they could reproduce. The animals were able to reproduce. Human beings were able to reproduce. Everything that God made, God gave life, but God gave life-giving life. And so when God talks about salvation... It begins with you turning the direction of your life, embracing and reconciling yourself with God. That's just the beginning. Salvation will not end until you have been made perfect. Until you have inherited a perfected heaven and earth. A brand new version of this world where everything that's broken is gone. And you can live and have joy and have community, and you can explore this world and every other world that we can reach with growing technology forever. We will not, I mean, we're going to spend the rest of eternity knowing God better and exploring the universe that he made. And salvation's not done until we get there. And so when Paul says that the gospel is God's power unto salvation, he means it brings you into the family and you get adopted by God. You're forgiven. God wipes the slate clean. He makes you as perfect as Jesus. I mean, what's crazy is that this verse, Paul actually spends the rest of this entire letter explaining what this verse means. This phrase, the power of God unto salvation. He's like, what do you mean, Paul? He goes, well, actually, let me tell you. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 describe the stories that get interrupted by this gospel. The brokenness, the darkness stories that enslave us. The gospel reaches into those stories and brings something new. In chapter 3, it's forgiveness. In chapter 4, it's assurance. In chapter 5, it's peace. In chapter 6, it's power and newness. In chapter 7, it's a renewed perspective on your ongoing struggles. In chapter 8... There is, there's joy in the journey of life. You realize that you're now embarking on a journey with God at your side, in your heart, all the way home. In chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul describes this dynamic of the gospel and how it actually makes all of God's promises come true to both Jews and Gentiles and to the whole world. And then when he gets done with that, in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, Paul says, and this cosmic story of what God is doing with the universe and in history, this actually comes true in your life's relationships. This makes you a radically different person. When you recognize, whoa, wait, hold on, I've got this other story that I'm now a part of. And so we're going to spend months, maybe years, Exploring the rest of what this phrase means. The power of God for salvation. That's where it's heading. 
This is why Paul said it is so hard to be shamed. It's so hard to be ridiculed. It's so hard to speak up when you know you're going to be misunderstood. It's so difficult, but I can't not do it because in some ways it's not up to me. And if I just share this story about Jesus, if I can talk to people and help them understand that his power has made my whole life different, and I've seen his power make other people's lives different, people who have been addicted are set free, people who are lost and selfish begin to live for others, marriages get healed, people who are dating realize there's a better way to do this, People at work have a renewed sense of what it means to work, right? Communities change. People give their time and their energy and their money to heal social injustice and brokenness. Like this is God's power to salvation. And I realize that it's my job to share the news and in ways that I don't fully understand, but all I know is that if I'm willing to endure the shame, if I'm not willing to let the shame silence me, then God will use my sharing and my life's example of it to help other people experience this salvation. Boom! (laughs) Right? I mean, this is such, like this is so connected to where we are right now. So this is why Paul was able to resist the silence, to resist the shame and not stay in silence because he knew that this was how God brings his power to earth. It's when you share what you've experienced from Jesus and what Jesus has done with others. And Paul's so confident. He's so confident about this. Our next point, this power of God, this renews anyone from anywhere or anyone from everywhere. That's what he means when he says in verse 16, is to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We're not going to talk about this today, but we're going to see this successively in the chapters to come, that there was a radical racial divide in the world of Paul's day. There were, I mean, just the the relationship between the Jews and the Greeks um, was one of the most segregated environments in human history. And Paul makes it very clear that this power of God that comes from Jesus goes to anyone from everywhere. Paul says to the Jew first, all to the Greeks, because God chose Abraham. He chose the nation of Israel. We're going to talk about what the design of God was in chapter 4. We're going to talk about it, where that went wrong in chapter 4, actually in chapter 2 as well, we're going to see this theme come up over and over and over again. As Paul's describing Jesus and what God has done through Jesus, he's going to say, and this is how it fits into the story and brings the story of the Old Testament to its climax. It went to the Jew first, but also to the Greeks. And what happens, like for us today, I just want you to hear this. What happens to us is that when you get gripped by this power of God, this becomes the most important thing about you. When we're baptized, we're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what that means, the name, that means you join God's family. That means that your name is Hillary, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? You are... Luigi, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's your last name. You're David, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And guess what? We all have the same last name. 
if we're Christians. And so this, this, this means that for this means that for anybody who's a follower of Jesus, that you have more in common with them than your differences. The most important thing about your life you have in common with them, and what this does, this radically heals racial divisions, socioeconomic divisions. This lets us be a diverse church. This lets us be a diverse family because all of us, even if we feel uncomfortable and awkward, we are stepping into and leaning into the reality that, look, we have more in common than our differences. There is something that is most important about me that's most important about you. We have that in common. So we are brothers and sisters. We're going to see more of this to come. And then just the last thing that Paul says here that he makes clear is that this gospel works through faith. This power comes when we believe. That's what he says. This this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's for everyone who believes. And so God works through faith. Okay, that's where the series is going. God works through history. God works through people. God works through Jesus. This power comes through faith. It's when we believe. It's our faith that brings God's power. Because when we believe, you end up... It's, it's not just that you mentally assent. Like, okay, in the God box, I put Jesus. Okay? It's so much more than that. Because what Paul is saying about Jesus is what you believe. And so to say that you believe in Jesus, to say that you are following Jesus, is to say that you believe that the God who made the world, the God who is over the world, came in Jesus. That all that Jesus did is an invitation to you into a relationship with him. That's what it means to believe. If you believe that this Jewish carpenter's son who came and lived this new and better life and invited us to live a new and better life and then took the punishment that our old and worse lives deserved. When you, if you believe that, then you believe that God himself in an expression of forgiveness said, I'm going to take your punishment for you so that I can tell you assuredly that you are forgiven. When you believe that, it changes everything about you because now what you're saying is, I'm in a relationship with this God. He is my God and I am one of his people. And that relationship changes everything. And so faith actually connects us. When we say that we believe in Jesus, what we're actually doing is we're saying, it's like we're standing at the altar with Jesus. He has already said, I do. When you believe, you're saying, I do. And that creates a relationship that touches everything in your life. Everything. Nothing is held back. Everything in your life. Because now you are married to Jesus. Jesus is that close to you. The Bible tells us to use our imagination when it calls us, when it describes a relationship with Jesus. Because it's like, well, where do we have this sense of like, what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? Right? And in one place, the Bible says the church and its relationship to Jesus is kind of like the relationship between a husband and a wife. It means there's 
There, there's real intimacy there. There's communication. There's mutual submission and service. There is sacrificial love and leadership. And so you can't just say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and that not affect everything in your life. Because, and so this is what happens. Like our faith, our faith is what connects us to Jesus. It's a living and an organic relationship. You have friends that, that, that make you feel stronger. You have people that you spend time with and you feel like you're a better version of yourself when you're with them. This is what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. It's to everyone who believes. Because believing is not just saying, yeah, I think that this is who God is. But believing means this is what God has done for me. And I am going to live for him. Have you done that? I think hearing this may actually startle some of you into thinking, wait, I thought I was a Christian. I'm not, sure, I'm not so sure anymore. If that's where you're at, then I would encourage you to embrace this understanding of what it means to have faith. Because as you recommit yourself, as you sort of re-up, like renewing, it's like renewing vows with Jesus, you will feel God's power come alive in you. And if you don't understand how that power looks, come back. Come back, because we are just scratching the surface of this letter. Everything else that we have to say is going to give us greater knowledge of of understanding of what God's power is uh, unleashed in our hearts to salvation. And for those of you who aren't Christians here, man, this is his offer. Jesus is here. There is good news. And it calls you, it calls you to not just believe, but to follow. It calls you. God has come. God has come to bring forgiveness, to bring healing, to bring reconciliation, and to give you the strength you need to be the best version of who you were designed to be. And so say to Jesus, I do, I'm in. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this good news. Jesus, remind us. I pray, Jesus, I pray that you would remind each one of us who already believe um, how we've seen your power at work in our lives. Some of us, even just this week, we've seen your power. For some of us, we've got to go back years to the last time when we saw your power at work in our lives. But just remind us of that power and what you've done to give us assurance, to calm our anxious hearts, to help us grow and change. Remind us of how we've experienced your power. And remind us of just how much you are at work in our church. And when we can't use ourselves as examples, let us use each other as examples that we've seen of how you've changed people and your power at work in them. And I pray, God, that you would help us not to be silenced by the shame, but to trust that you will use our sharing to help people see that there is a new and a better way to live and to know you. Draw us near.
Help us this week to begin to share. God, we want you to grow us as people so that we might be able to share with others so that our church would grow. Lord, we want to be your people for this world. And so give us your strength and help us to walk in that this week by speaking up. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.